How do we know if this this is recording? Is it not recording? We checking? We're all good. All right, cool. Well then, hello. Good to see you all. Um, for those of you who don't know me, actually, all of you better know me. So for all of those who are not used to hearing my voice, uh, at least not on this end of the microphone, um, I am Joshua Spurlock. I am Rick Spurlock's son and Joseph Squitrini's son-in-law. So that I'm like the heir to the throne, or something along those lines. Um, <laughs> that's true. I've got I've got I've got some very worthy opponents. Um, um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, Pardes, which is one of those cool acronyms that's actually a word. Unlike the CIA or the FBI or just about any acronym the government comes up with, Pardes is a word in Hebrew and it means orchard. Um, so uh, it alludes to the Garden of Eden, um, so we can kind of dig in to the orchard, into the Garden of Eden to learn more. Oh, wait, that was a Pardes joke. We're making an allusion to... Okay. Um, for those of you who didn't understand that joke, you'll get it hopefully by the end. So I'm going to quickly walk through you guys through just some basic stuff, um, what Pardes is. Essentially, Pardes is a system of interpreting scripture. The sages came up with this idea to kind of categorize the different ways of looking at the Bible and interpreting it, analyzing it, breaking it down, um, and what, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, everybody, I contend, everybody has an interpretive method for studying Scripture. No one really reads only the very face, simple value of it. And if you do, then I think you're wrong. And we're going to talk about that later. Um, but... The irony is, even though you can't simply read the, the top level, it is the most important. And so Pardes, like I said, is an acronym, and it stands for the different layers, according to Judaism, that are in the scriptures. And the first one, the P in Pardes, is the word Peshat, which means simple in Hebrew. If you were to study modern Hebrew, they would, um, they would use the very, you know, basically the same word. So uh, it, on, a, on a scriptural level, when we're talking Pardes, um, it's literal or basic meaning. So you read it exactly the way that it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it literally means, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The end, period. Um, and that is the first surface level at the very top of it. The second one in Pardes, and by the way, feel free to make comments, interrupt me, argue with me. Um, I don't think the lessons... I, I've got, I think we've got time, so it's not, there's not a huge amount of stuff to like dig into just to kind of introduce people and then discuss a little bit about it, so I've, we've got space for debate. Um, but the R in Pardes stands for remez. Um, it literally, it means hint in Hebrew, uh, and it's a, good, it's a good meaning because it's based off of the concept of illusions. You see one thing and it makes you think about something else. Um, you see something and you think, oh, that reminds me of... Uh, the classic example my dad always uses of remez in modern pop culture is if you say, a, uh, a horse of a horse, of course, of course, except when it's Mr. Ed. Uh, apparently, the remez in that case doesn't work so well anymore. Uh, when my dad first used, well, my dad first used the example, it was, you know, back when we still had generations that watched uh, television, but, um, but uh, anyway... Oh, all right. Of course, of course, of course. Except when it's Mr. Ed. So, um, anyway, point being, this is an illusion. You, you, you say part of a phrase, people finish the phrase for you because they know exactly what you're talking about. That's kind of the concept here, but not all of it. 
Um, it can go a whole lot deeper and more complicated than that. Uh, Remez, in Hebrew uh, biblical interpretation, is going to make use of cross-references. Quote-unquote, stringing pearls can be one way of looking at it. Basically, you take one cross-reference, it reminds you of another cross-reference, which reminds you to another cross-reference, and suddenly you have like four or five verses that are all sort of interconnected based on the ones in between. Yeah, exactly. If you've ever prayed through that cool prayer right before Ashrei in your morning prayers, it's like pray with special intensity. Almost the entire thing is basically remez. It's one verse that leads into another verse that leads into another verse from the Psalms and prophets and all that stuff. So that's essentially remez. Remez also can make use of gematria um, and linguistic analysis according to Chabad.org. Um, the D in Pardes is drash, which literally means search or can also kind of um, essentially mean explanation in Hebrew. Um, this is sort of the uh, allegorical meaning. It's a derived meaning from the text. It's, uh, it's probably the one that um, if, part, if Peshat and Remez are really textual based, this one starts to step a little bit away from the text. It starts to kind of dig into the text on what it might be meaning, what it could be inferring. Um, it, it's, and it also includes some parables and some stories. We'll get into more of that in a second. Yes, Ryan. Um, that could be one way to look at it for sure, or remez, one or the other. Um, and depending on, and in some cases, maybe even some sewed. We'll get into that in a second. But it really kind of depends on how, how much, how, how stretched out the link is. Um, and we're going to, I'm going to actually, that's a good example. We're going to bring that up later when we talk about some examples of some of these. Um, And that's actually um, something we're going to get into in just one second, because there's, there's a specific example from the Talmud that, that links to that. Um, Rav Zadok, so I want to say, I, I cited a number of websites in my research, because I just found some cool places that talked about Pardes. This is not an endorsement of any of those websites, because I only found this one topic on there. So they may have a whole bunch of scary stuff that I don't want you reading. But in this case, um, Rav Zadok on binyanhaolam.com, he notes there are two types of drosh, uh, agadic, which is storytelling drosh, um, and halakhic, which is guidelines for daily life. Um, now, how you're thinking, okay, I get, I get the idea how you can make a story from, you know, a parable about the Bible, but where exactly, how do you design guidelines from derived meaning? Well, an example is, like, if you have an illusion in text that will show you exactly what we're talking about. And the classic example of that is um, Nazir 5a. In Nazir 5a, you've got the, uh, the phrase, he will be holy, talking about the Nazarite. And the sages said... Oh, that's cool. The word he will be in Hebrew, yie, is, um, adds up to the number 30. Each letter in Hebrew has a number value. So in gematria, you can add the letters in a word up, and it equals 30. English doesn't really work that way, but you, if you wanted to pretend, you could say A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, etc. Hebrew, it's more complicated than that same concept. So the word will be in that is, uh, is 30. So when they looked at a Nazarite vow, they said, what happens if you make a vow and don't say how long it's going to last? Because the whole concept of a Nazarite vow is that you have to finish it with a sacrifice. And it's, a, it's a promise on how long you're not going to drink wine and cut your hair and all that. So they said, well, if you haven't specified how many days it's going to be, then it needs to at least be 30. Um, and they based that off of the, the grammatria of will be. So that's a classic example of what you're talking about, Gregory. The idea that they'll take halakha from the drosh level. 
Um, and that can be sometimes the one that we're going to probably debate the most, but that's one example. Yes, sir? That's the Pura Megillah. And to, generally speaking, the way that's going to be applied, a Godic tends to be like a parable, so it's going to be focused on a moral. It's going to be focused on a point, a greater life lesson, or usually, or sometimes the truth about God. Whereas a halakhic thing is going to be very specific, very pointed. It's going to be, okay, um, you know, this is how fast you should drive on the road, or this is, not literally, but that's be an example, but like in halakhic Judaism... Yeah, how, how far you can walk on the Sabbath, what, well, can you turn lights off and on, in this case, how many days you should have for a Nazarite vow. Yes, Dad. dig in more, a little bit more on some of what the parables work and how they apply and function. Um, so, so then Yeshua would be using the agotic form in his parable. In fact, he used it almost exclusively. Yeah. And halakhic. And actually, you'll see, I mean, agotic, as, a, as a, applying to the text, you're going to see that the agotic drosh is something that Paul makes a ton of use of. You're going to see, um, I mean, a number of people are going to be drawing from this. It, today, the most classic example of an agotic drosh of sorts is your typical sermon illustration. Or someone who takes a couple verses and tries to draw a broader principle from those verses. Like, for example, if you've been studying with us throughout the book of Genesis during the Torah reading, um, you're probably doing agotic drash every day you read, whether you think about it or not, because you're reading what Abraham did, and you're thinking, okay, Abraham does this, was that right or wrong, should I apply that to my life, how does that teach me about God? Essentially, the entire book of Genesis is a story that we're applying principles from, which is a form of agotic drash.
sages, he's tending his gematria a fair amount. And part of the part of the thinking behind that is obviously they're looking at the Hebrew, which is the language that God chose to give most of the scripture. Um, and certainly the Tanakh, although some Aramaic there as well, but which is very close to Hebrew. Uh, but the the idea there is because is the holy tongue that God gave the scriptures in that and because Hebrew is alpha numeric and actually in the paleo it's, it's hieroglyphic as well it's pictographs um, there's a view that all three of those are equally inspired the text is, is, is inspired on all of those levels so when they look at like that like the gematria will be some people would say, well, okay, so it just happens to equal the 30, but they don't look at it that it way. It reads 30. It, right. In the text, it reads 30. Right. When you're looking at a page of Hebrew, you're looking at alpha, and you're looking at a page of numbers. It's basically, is one way to think about it. So the, the sages would say, no, it just, just happened to equal 30. God made it equal 30 because it's equally inspired just right. like everything else. So that's why they Well, and and just to, just to step in there. And this is that's the step in and say that is a good example that, to illustrate that gematria is not the the Bible code concept. So it's it's much more structured um, and it's focused. And we're going to see in a minute. It, it's going to keep the main plain meaning of a text in mind. So. Um, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. The last level, the deepest level, is the uh, the last level. The deepest level is sod, which in Hebrew means secret, um, um, and it's the mystical or spiritual elements behind the text. So um, that sounds really deep. What does it mean? Uh, one example that was given um, Or Sameach's website has an Ask the Rabbi column, and this was I thought this was amazing. They take the Hebrew word in the beginning, Bereshit, in Genesis 1-1, and they dig into the, the sowed level, the secret level, and what they said was um, essentially in the beginning um, was a Gemara, one of the um, commentaries on the, the sages' comments, are, uh, says that there are ten statements that create the world when God makes the world. But if you add them all up, there's only nine in Genesis. So the question is, what's the tenth one? Well, the tenth one is the word Bereshit in the beginning. So what they're deriving from this on a sowed level is that the, the word, when it says in the beginning, it's actually the creation of time by God. So that's something that obviously we look at it and Christians today would all argue that, uh, well, most Christians would probably argue that God created time. Uh, but where? When? And the sages point the first word in the Bible and say, there's the creation of time. That's a sowed level. It's not obvious. You're really digging deep there, and you're trying to get way below the surface. But it's kind of a cool concept. Is it true or not? Maybe not. But it's still something that makes you go, ah, okay. So maybe some basis behind this idea. Um, the rule. This is important. This is, I think, the saving grace behind Pardes and ultimately should be the guideline that anybody ever uses whenever they're doing any kind of uh, interpretive research in the scriptures. Never contradict 
the Peshat. Never go against the simple, plain meaning of the text. If you're reading the text and it says something, don't, you know, play games to try and get it to say something else. Um, and I think this is one of the things that's really plagued a lot of traditional Christianity over the years, because unfortunately, the entire first two-thirds of the Bible were allegorized, which erased the simple meaning of the text. And that has been a real problem uh, on, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, a good example. One comment I'm going to shot though, is, uh, as, as is always the case, context is important because there's a literal reading of Ooh. the text and there's a literate reading of the text. Hold that thought because we're going to get back to it right at the end because that's actually... I know. He's, he's, that's the end. You've already... You, it's so good. It's so why am I here? I think... No, never mind. Um, yes, Pete. <laughs> And to be fair, Judaism has in the past too. Um, I think from what I did a little research on, um, there was sort of a rebirthing, if you will, of focusing on the Peshat that developed um, post-Talmudic period in Judaism. But there was a a point in time where, unfortunately, the Peshat was not given quite as much um, strength as it should have been. Uh, And that uh, one of the people they cited as actually being good at this was Rashi, um, Rambam also shows up another person who is who does a good job of trying to get things back to the basic level. Right. That's undisputed. The, um, what, I'm, what I'm asking really is, has mainstream Christianity done that, or really anyone? Because if the rule is never contradict Peshat, uh, like I don't, I don't think allegorization or the typical allegorization of mainstream Christianity is contradicting Peshat, although sometimes it does. It's more just adding something that doesn't seem to be directly related to Peshat. And I would argue that that's, that's also, that's just the natural uh, afterbirth. Well, I think the key, and this is one of the things we mentioned before, Precept Ministries is always fond of saying the phrase, context is king. And one of the things about Peshat is it's not just the Peshat of that set of words. It's the Peshat of the scriptures more as a whole. So where I would say that like Christianity has stumbled in this area is, for example, um, they, you know, you'll, you'll, take a, you'll take a concept of Yeshua's substitutionary atonement. They then you know, try to dig deeper and they come up with the idea that you know, Jesus fulfilled all of the commandments. Well, he, okay, he did in a sense. He had to keep them all. And it says he uses the phrase, I came to fulfill the law. And they interpret that as saying, well, that means he, 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 he absolved us of any responsibility for them because he absorbed, in a sense, the, the responsibility for that. So that would be an example where they, throughout the whole first two-thirds of the Bible, and certainly the first five books of it, um, whole cloth, uh, in exchange for a Ramez or Drashik or even sowed level interpretation. So I see you're saying that the Peshat can also mean like the entire canon mm-hmm. of Scripture. So... So I would just I would just wonder in your opinion if um, like a complementary uh, interpretation because that doesn't contradict but there's no way to well, I think, well to determine the veracity. Well, that's actually something that we're going to talk a little bit about, and that's one thing that is kind of important. Um, ultimately, the interpretation's veracity, um, I think, complementary is fine because. 
the, the main thing here is, that certainly, and once you start getting to Drosh and Sod, whether or not the interpretation is even completely true may or may not be relevant as long as it's, teach, it's, it's reinforcing a concept that you know is. Um, so we're going to we'll dig into some examples that hopefully will illustrate that point. Yes, sir. And I think, I mean, one thing about this, uh, if you recall from our study of the Perkei Avot um, back over the summer, uh, one of the, in my research this got mentioned at one point, um, the Perkei Avot strongly encouraged the, their readers to not let their wisdom overturn their righteousness. Because unfortunately, that is, that is definitely a, um, a, a devious trick of the enemy to where we, we can sometimes outthink ourselves, in a sense, um, by trying to dig in too deeply. Did you have something similar? Or? Uh, Mm. So, um, real quick, is ex- where does the, the phrase don't contradict Shabbat or uh, Peshat actually is a Talmudic concept, um, even though the Talmudic era maybe was not as good on that, this is uh, something that they did establish in the Talmud. Um, and I say not as good on that, I haven't done extensive research. The, the point that was made is that one of the rat sages in this particular discussion actually says, I've never heard this Peshat should never be contradicted. So, one of the websites I researched said that was evidence that maybe it was not as, as high-ranking as it should have been at the time. Um, but feel free, if you do more research and disagree with me, please do so. I would hate to, you know, disparage the sages of blessed memory. <laughs> um, anyway, so Shabbat 63a uh, is a discussion on carrying swords on Shabbat. Basically, the question is, if you're not a soldier in battle, are you allowed to go outside with your, you know, sword strapped to your hip? And, Which actually works now. And the key is, this is important to note, um, in, in Judaism, if it's not in an aruv, it's not in a little a, a sectioned-off area like a walled-in city or a Jewish community, um, then you actually cannot carry any object outside um, with, with your hands. And they draw this from the book of Jeremiah and other places that, that discourage carrying burdens. Um, and ultimately, um, you'll find that, ironically enough, uh, whether Yeshua agrees with the um, final decision or not is up to you to decide. But when he tells the man to carry his pallet on Shabbat inside the city of Jerusalem, so it was within the city, um, a walled city, then people get all up, upset with him because he told the guy to carry something on the Sabbath. The, the, but, but technically Jerusalem would have most likely have been in a roof at the time, so Yeshua would have been falling in line with the modern day view, unless 
you happen to argue that maybe that wasn't really a burden, so it doesn't count anyway. But either way, the point being that modern Judaism, even like carrying keys, like if you if you go to a, a Gentile part of town, you spend Shabbat, you can't carry your keys outside because at least not by hand, because that would violate the Sabbath prohibition. So that's the background for this discussion on Peshat. I know, why are we doing that? It's kind of long and drawn out. Let me just explain. The point was, the sages, Rabbi Eliezer is disagreeing with a bunch of the other guys here, and he's saying it's okay to carry swords on Shabbat because they're ornamental. It's like a piece of your clothing. It's not actually a weapon. It's, it's not an instrument. It's ornamental. Um, and uh, so he cites Psalm 45.3, which in the NASB um, says, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. Uh, so he's saying, see, it's, it's, it's your splendor, it's your majesty, it's an ornamental object. Um, but Rav Kahana disagrees. He says, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's not talking about an actual sword. It's a psalm. It's, it's, a, it's an allegory referring to the Torah. That's their interpretation of what it means. So he says, so, th- th- you know, that you can't use that. Well, that's when Mar, son of Rav Huna, jumps in and says, no, wait, it does refer to the Torah and an actual sword, and he says, a verse cannot depart from its plain meaning. In other words, if it's talking about a sword as being ornamental in a sense, well then, the background behind that, a sword is ornamental, is still true, even if the allegory is it's the Torah. Um, so the website I pulled this, uh, that the, the had the Talmud on it, was comeinhere.com, and it says that the literal meaning that a weapon is an ornament still applies, even if the actual meaning is metaphorical. Does that make sense? So a little bit kind of heavy there. But the point being, the Peshat is so important that even if the passage is technically um, metaphorical, uh, then you have to still lean towards the simple meaning of the text. So um, we'll talk more on the Peshat issue because that actually is a really important point. What is Peshat? We'll get to that in a minute. So let's look at a couple of examples here, because I've been kind of dancing around all these big Hebrew concepts. If you're not used to it, it's probably a little heavy. Um, so here's a great one. Melchizedek and Abraham. We have like entire theologies constructed out of this incredibly intense like four verses in Genesis. Um, the Peshat of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of God Most High, meeting Abraham. Here's the Peshat. Two nobles met, had a brief exchange involving bread, wine, and tithe. The end. <laughs> That was it. There was two guys, they met, they ate, he gave him a tenth of what he had, and that's it. That's all that happens. That's the Peshat. Nothing wrong with that, but that's the Peshat. Um, that is, of course, the first meaning of the text. It's a good thing. I don't denigrate it. I'm only simply kind to point out that there's got to be more to it, in my mind. Um, Remez. If you look at the book of Hebrews, almost the entire thing is Remez. It's pulling one cross-reference after another in a massively long train, half the time you're missing cross-reference three and four out of five because you're going one, two, and I didn't know that was, that's not part of that text. Where did this one come from? It's because he's got another one that's got another keyword and they're linked and it's like the stringing pearls concept. Um, it's pretty intense. One example, uh, Hebrews 10, 5 through 10, uh, links passages. It says, God you know, does not desire sacrifices, but a body you have given me. He says, I have come to do your will, And they string these passages together, and the interpretation is ultimately that Yeshua's offering of a body, his body, is the ultimate sacrifice that provides for our sins on that heavenly plane. We talked about sacrifices and stuff um, more recently. If you need a a, a refresher on what Hebrews is really talking about here, go listen to that lesson. But in this case, 
Hebrews is basically pulling these pieces together. It's like three different cross-references that if you read the context, you're like, they're not talking all about the same thing, but he's, he finds the key words to string it out in a remez that says, oh, this is what it does. Now, the key here is, does it disagree with the Peshat? Well, no. I think we've, we can see from throughout other parts of Scripture, we can look in Isaiah 53 and other places, Messiah's sacrifice does do that. So this was Hebrews pulling together all the pieces to sort of spell it out for you. But I think it's a valid interpretation. Um, the Gospels, you mentioned the Gospels earlier, Ryan, and how they use prophecy for Yeshua. Um, this is another classic example of Hermes. They're pulling stuff from all over the place that may or may not necessarily make sense on a surface level. I know we all read a virgin birth, and we're thinking, it's got to be Mary. The problem is, the Hebrew word for virgin doesn't have to be someone who's, you know, actually a virgin. It can refer to a young woman. And the actual context in Isaiah 7.14 for that passage is a young woman. God says... Yeah, a married woman. God says, um, or the, the king is, is looking or questioning, he, want, he doesn't want a sign, but God wants to give him a sign for an upcoming battle that's going to happen. And God goes, basically, that woman over there is going to get pregnant, and by the time she has her child, these things are going to happen. Oh, okay. That's all it is. But the Gospels look at it and they go, oh, that's cool. Alma can also refer to a virgin, a virgin birth, and it's going to be a sign. Oh, okay, it's also talking about Messiah. They do the same thing with the broken bones in the Pesach lamb. The Pesach lamb, uh, it says, not a bone that will be broken. Well, then, you know, John is looking at Yeshua on the, on, on his, uh, he's hanging up there, and he realizes that they break the, bone, the legs of both guys next to him, and they don't break his. And John goes, ah, it's a remez. I've seen this before. He's the Passover lamb, and you weren't supposed to break the bones of that. So that's an example of remez. The gospel's prophecy use is extremely remez intensive. It's not obvious from reading the prophets. You have to only be able to pull in the pieces when you see events and you line them up. So, yes, sir. Mm. Because she has Although it has to be, although although it's possible that Isaiah is if it's speaking about Isaiah's wife, then I probably she probably wasn't. Right. But but the point is they both can be true. Culturally, true. culturally it yeah. should always be true. <laughs> which makes it even more amazing that a normal thing would be used as a sign. And that's not, again, I hope that doesn't undermine anyone's faith in the gospel's use of the prophets. I'm actually saying is that this is a valid form of interpretation. This is exactly what I think God is hinting at in a secondary level within the text. We just can't forget about the, the surface level meaning. Yes, sir. Doesn't exist in the scripture. Right. There's a mention of Nazir as a branch town, 
but there's no, or that, as a branch, but there's nothing. Nowhere does it say that phrase. So he pulls things out of almost obscure places to tie things together. And unless you're familiar and comfortable with this method, it's it's it can be discombobulating, which is why a lot of times, you know, young people go to seminary and they're studying this stuff and they're looking at it and going, these people are crazy. Why would they ever have come up with this? Obviously it's not true. Or the non-believer looks at it. Non -non they try and use it as a proof text and they're like, that doesn't well, make that's sense. not the same. But when you come from a Jewish perspective, wow, it doesn't make sense. Right. Yes, friend. Well, I was just uh, thinking one uh, instance that I can think of is after Yeshua cleansed the temple and his apostles uh, remembered the mm -hmm. scripture And of course, that that's remez on an event level. Like as something's you're seeing happening, you're thinking of a scripture that applies to it. Um, most of the time with remez, you're actually reading a scripture and remembering another scripture. So you're you're seeing now. The, 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 you're absolutely right, Ryan. That is a good example of that. Um, and that's why I was saying with the gospels' use of prophecy, because that's most of what the gospels are doing as well. But on on our modern level, well, until we start hitting things in Revelation and Daniel. Most of the stuff, when we see something and it reminds us of scripture, it's because it's another scripture passage, usually. Yes, sir. I, I would also say, with respect to Ramez, if we were all more fluent in our Hebrew, we would, we would pick up a lot more Ramez <laughs> if we knew the Hebrew. Oh, because we don't know more than the sages. <laughs> well... And that's one thing as well about Ramez that becomes, and, and ultimately Drosh too, that becomes so powerful is these are men who've basically memorized the entire Old Test, the entire Hebrew Scriptures, so they can actually tell you. Like Rashi is phenomenal. He's like this word in one of the recent passions, portions. I can't remember which one it was. There was a um, a reference in Genesis, and there was a word that's used, and Rashi's like, this is the only time in all the Scripture it's used this way. It's like, whoa, like you knew that without a search engine. But, but his point was, so what does it mean? This is the only time. It's used other times, but it never is used in this context. So what's it talking about? So that's an example when you're looking at like Ramez or Drosh. It's like, okay, that doesn't seem to fit. What is it doing? Yes, Gideon. Let me give you 
was in one of the recent um, portions uh, in, in Genesis. Uh, when Jacob is on his deathbed and um, he summons, well, first he summons Yosef, and Yosef brings the plan and Manashe, and that famous passage where he crosses his hand and blesses the temple first, right? And there's obviously something profound going on here, right? And when you look at when you look at the text in the Hebrew, the blessing for um, Ephraim, whose name Ephraim's name means fruitful, to be fruitful. It says uh, it says in the English that he would become a multitude of nations. But when you look in the Hebrew, um, the word that's used in there has the word dog, the Hebrew word dog in it. Dog in Hebrew means a fish. Okay? In other words, he's saying, you're going to become like a school of fish because you're fruitful. You're, and his name is fruitful, right? All the names mean something and typically have some sort of prophetic significance to it. So, in the Hebrew, you would see that the, the word fish there, okay? And, and now, if you, if you hold that thought, this prophecy, this blessing that Ephraim will become like this school of fish, lots of fish. Then you go to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 16, I think it is, Jeremiah has a prophecy where he's where God prophesies through Jeremiah and he says um, he says, I'm going to send fishermen to go bring back the children of Israel and bring them back to the and after I send fishermen, then I'm going to send hunters. There's an interesting discussion. We'll stay focused on fishermen. Okay. So then, so there's this, so this idea of sending fishermen to, to go get fished makes a lot of sense if you're reading the prophecy about Eph, uh, about uh, uh, about Ephraim in the Hebrew. Okay. Because there's now you connect. You have a romance. You connect the concepts, and then. Then you fast forward to the time of Yeshua, right? Yeshua comes on the scene, scene he, and he first he, he appears, you know, kind of uh, after he's uh, after he's baptized and he goes into the desert. He comes back and you know, let's just say he kind of starts his quote unquote ministry, right? That's what we kind of talk. Well, what's what's the first thing he does? He goes to um, a town and and. In Galilee, uh, a fishing town on the Sea of Galilee, and what does he do? He recruits fishermen. Why is he recruiting fishermen? Right, and what does he say? Follow me. I'm going to make you fishers. And so this whole concept of fish goes all the way back to this, the, the way this prophecy is laid down in the Hebrew. But if you don't, if you're not reading the Hebrew, you don't connect those dots nearly. So the whole idea of oh, why have you. So the <laughs> of why Yeshua seemed to be obsessed with fish and fishermen and whatever, you know, we've always been taught that well, it's because we're supposed to go preach the gospel. Well, that's true. Everybody has a face on their cards now. Right. And, and that's true, but 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 it goes deeper than that. He's connecting back to something that was laid down in the Now on, every time we hear fishers of men, everybody go like this. <laughs> <laughs>
So, um, the right of the Oaks is Colby. The um, one ex- one example here. <laughs> um, one quick example of halakhic remez, since we were talking about that earlier, not to be too confusing. Um, but like for example, the part of where we get the, a lot of the concept between the times of prayer is linked up with the sacrifices. Because it talks about, you know, your, the lips of your, you know, being like bulls and the, like on the altar. So this, if you're looking at, the, like, how, well, why do we pray in the morning, afternoon, and evening? Is it just because it's conveniently the three different times of the day? Well, no, it's because they would offer sacrifices specific, starting in the morning. They conclude the afternoon sacrifices that kind of cap, wrap, wrap up the sacrifices for the day. And then at night, they'd burn the leftovers to kind of clean the altar off to get ready for the next one. So they, the, the times of prayer were linked to these three things. That would be a remez. You started with, oh, prayer is like sacrifices. Well, halakhically, when do we pray? Let's pray when they offer sacrifices. So that's an example of that remez concept, again, being at work. In the afternoon. In the afternoon, yeah. And then Jacob prays when he goes, lies, lays down at Beit El. So, um, uh, Drash, now Drash, the goal is to teach him moral, um, you know, a lot of the time. So, we're going to, uh, uh, the, the key to that means that the parable of the story doesn't have to be true to achieve the goal. That's something my dad's often pointed out. Honestly, when I, he first started telling me that, I was like, no, it bothers me if the story's not true. He's right. It doesn't matter if the story's true or not. If you've ever heard a sermon illustration, it doesn't matter if he's talking about the guy in the first row or talking about a fictional character he made up yesterday. The point is the point. It's not the story. So, if Lazarus was a real person who died and went to the afterlife and Yeshua got to see him all firsthand, cool. And if he's not, it's irrelevant. Because the point of the story was learning about the importance of repentance and learning about the shortness of life, not what, you know, how the afterlife works. So that would be a parable. Um,
So uh, one of the cool parts, I'll just give you a really funny example. This is a really neat example. I love this example. You may think it's bizarre, and I hope you don't you know, run away and leave. But this was one of my favorite examples of Drosh that I've been reading more recently. Um, you got Jacob on Beit El, Genesis 28. And there's a really, this is cool, this is where Hebrew comes into play, knowing the Hebrew is important. There's a really weird thing that happens in the Hebrew. <coughs> when Jacob goes to gather something to sleep on, he gets stones plural, to sleep on. But then later, it says that he took the stone, singular, that he slept on and raises up as a pillar to, to, anoint, to anoint for God. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Was it... The sages look at that and they go, ooh, ooh, that's cool. It was plural, now it's singular. What happened? There's this really unique and kind of creative story they tell of, well, there, there were a bunch of stones. He gathered a whole bunch of stones. And the stones started arguing with each other about who gets the privilege of being the pillow for Jacob. And so they're, they're debating, and God steps in, and it's like, okay, you all have this righteous desire to want to minister to a righteous man, I'll make you all one giant stone, and now you all get the privilege of being Jacob's pillow. That may sound silly, you may think, that's ridiculous, it doesn't matter. What does it teach us? It teaches us a couple things. Number one, it teaches us the importance of, um, of wanting to serve the righteous. We see how much it matters to God. Which I think, if you look at the Peshat and other parts of the Hebrew, you'll see the same thing. Yeshua says, you know, the least of these, you've done it to me. Okay? Then, backing up another level from that, we see God's compassion. Throughout this, uh, the sages are, are keen on the idea of showing compassion to inanimate objects. Which, of course, on a surface level is ridiculous. But, the idea is, if we show compassion to stones, how much more should we show compassion to fellow human beings? So, this little analogy, this little story, this drosh on this one oddity in the Hebrew, is it plural, is it singular, can be, can be completely false. It could be true. Who knows? It doesn't matter. Because the point is the point. Um, another example, you might be going, oh, I don't know. I don't think that's really scriptural to do that. Well, guess what? Paul does that. Paul really does that. Best example I can think of is Galatians chapter 4. He does this whole huge allegory on Hagar and Sarah. And his point is that Hagar is a slave Sarah is free, the child of promise versus the child of the flesh, and all these cool things. And his point, his point is actually not trying, I don't think, really trying to argue law and grace. His point was, throw them out. God tells Abraham, listen to Sarah. Hagar is not good, Ishmael's not good, they're not going to re receive the reward with Isaac, send them away. So Paul's point in Galatians 4 is, these guys are trouble. These guys who are slaves to the law or rather slaves to their own laws, man-made laws, they are like Hagar. You've got to get rid of them. They're dangerous. So that's the point. It's an allegory that's pretty expansive. In fact, he takes it to like even sowed levels when he pulls in Jerusalem and Mount Sinai, and it's like hyper-complicated, this massive allegory. But his point is very simple. Get rid of them. They're not good. They're going to hurt you guys, and ultimately, they're pulling you down. Well, yeah, exactly. That the, 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 the mm -hmm. exactly. So, so yeah. So Paul is using this allegory because he's trying to argue with people who are who are focused on the on the Torah. He's pulling an allegory from the Torah to try and you know undercut them as sort of a rhetorical method um, or rhetoric rather. The problem is the analogy 
So that's this example why we have to go back to the Peshat, and to your, we were talking about earlier, Peter, the Peshat on a broad, like, universal level. If we stick just to the Peshat of one's passage, you could potentially come up with a quote-unquote complementary interpretation that's not valid because you're ignoring other parts of the puzzle here. Um, the last one, Sod, pretty much the whole book of Hebrews practically delves into Sod, and one of the most classic examples I thought, and you feel free to disagree with me if you don't think this is Sod, but I thought it was, um, is Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek, remember we mentioned him on the Peshat level. What's the Peshat? He's this dude, and they, they eat, and that's it. Hebrews looks at it and goes, whoa, it doesn't tell us who his dad is. Like, we, we, every time we hear about somebody's name, they almost always say, so-and-so, son of so-and-so. We don't get that here. In fact, we don't hear about his kids. We don't hear about anything. So he has no genealogy. Well, what does that mean? That means he's a priest that endures forever. Whoa, hang on. Sir, let me see if I get this straight. You didn't tell me who his dad was. His priesthood endures forever. This is sowed. Because what they're doing is they're taking a simple level. There's no genealogy. And they're using it in an interpreted method to argue a broader point. It's probably valid. Well, how do we know this later? We also see in Psalms, you're a priest before me forever, right? So it's a, it's a valid argument. But it's using a sowed format. I mean, the king of Sodom doesn't have genealogy listed either. But no one's arguing that he lives forever. It's actually, it's actually a sowed, it's actually a sowed on something that's not in the text. Although, it might be a potentially valid argument. It depends. It's, I think it's one of debate. And that's one of the important things, especially when you get to Sod. You cannot be dogmatic. Um, once you start talking Drosh, and certainly once you get to Sod, the interpretations are, I think, debatable. I, we can totally disagree. And that's cool. In fact, it's probably healthy because we'll learn something in the process. So one of the things about when you start talking about stuff like Sod and these different levels, again, what is the key? The key is not to reinterpret the simple, the Peshat. The key is not to reinvent it. The key is not to create a whole new theology that's outside of Scripture altogether. The idea is to reinforce it with something else that's there. And I think the reason why this is so helpful, one, one small reason, if, you're, if you have problems studying the Scripture, if you're somebody who reads it and finds it boring or has trouble paying attention, Pardes is for you. Because what you will find is we read these passages over and over and over and over again. And you're going to find something brand new every single time. Because you're going to read it and you're going to go, wait a minute, that, that word spelled wrong. Or I thought that there were you know, 70 people that went to Egypt. Why am I only counting 69? So, and also, this is really important too. Again, 
I when I went to um, when I went to university, I had a religion class on the Bible, in which, of course, they try to do everything they can to tell you the Bible is not true. One of the things that stood out to me that was really hard to deal with sometimes is questions. You're reading the scripture and you're like, well, was it the Ishmaelites that carried Joseph off? Was it the Midianites? Obviously, the scriptures are contradicting each other, so it must have been written by four people. This is the, you know, this is the cynical, uh, the documentary hypothesis that's sort of their own interpretive method of the scriptures. But see, what's cool is if you start pulling in the Pardes level, you start going, oh, no, wait, no, wait, hang on, let me think, Ishmael and Midian, those are both sons of Abraham, maybe they tag-teamed, you can start creating a whole, like, story around this, that might teach you a lesson. The best example that I can think of is the use of the names of God in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the names of God switch. Genesis 1, he's known as Hashem, Genesis 2, or, excuse me, Genesis 1 is Elohim, Genesis 2 is Hashem, and people looked at that, and the critics did their own little, you know, Pardes of sorts, and they said, oh, it must be written by two different people. This guy believed that God's name was Hashem, and this guy believed that God's name was Elohim, and they didn't, you know, to try and keep the two groups together, they just decided, okay, we'll make them both part of Scripture. But the sages looked at it and they go, no, 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 this is all written by Moses, it's all valid and true. That's always, I think, the first part. Whenever you do Pardes, you always start with Scripture is inspired by God. That's your first part. The second step, then, they look at it and go, Okay, well, what do we learn? Obviously, this is important. We had a question. Why does God's name change? Why does he, you know, redo the entire creation story all over again? And the sages looked at it and go, Ah, whenever we see the name Elohim, it's oftentimes linked to justice. Whenever we see the name Hashem, it's oftentimes linked to mercy. So Elohim is God's name, is like a, a title of God that links it to justice. We see his mastery of the universe in Genesis chapter 1 and how he is the judge who created everything. And because he created everything... He is the judge of everything. Chapter 2, we see the mercy of Hashem as he forms man of the dust and breathes into him the breath of life. So guess what? We just took a question that caused some people to 